Blog Talk Radio. September 20th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from an American exceptionalist perspective. And as you'll see today, we actually do a deep dive into the ideas behind American exceptionalism, and so I think what you're going to hear today is a bit different analysis approach to Trump's speech at the UN yesterday than you hear pretty much any place else. If you looked at some of the intro material that I've got out there on Blog Talk Radio over at my blog at DontLetItGo.com, you'll see overall, yes, I agree that if you take many of the things that Trump said out of context from his speech yesterday, they were excellent. But what I am going to try to convince you of in this show is that his anti, uh, anti-ideological framework, he is anti-ideology. And that framework, if you can call it a framework, since he, you know, eschews ideology, that undermines anything good that he says. And in fact, we see it from a, you know, there's a tweet that he put out today that he's so happy to be meeting with a boss from the Palestinian Authority. So I'm going to tie that in to what I'm going to say about his speech from yesterday. As I said, I've got the blog, don'tletitgo.com. Some people are reading the description of today's show from there. And I have a few program notes. But this is a very focused show. What I'm really looking at is the transcript of Trump's speech. We're going to take a deep dive into this. And just to give you sort of a preview on what I'm going to be looking at, the overall tone of the speech has been described by people in the mainstream media, not in the, you know, sort of Trump cheerleader media. There is a Trump cheerleader media too, but the mainstream media has been saying it's, it's a dark tone. And I agree. It's a dark tone. There's a lot of doom and gloom in this speech. I would tie that dark tone to his anti-ideology approach. And we'll talk a little bit about why. When he does talk about United States All of the discussion, or even if he mentions rights or he mentions freedom, it is divorced from the philosophical foundation. And in many places, he avoids even using the term rights, uh, and he certainly doesn't talk about our country having been founded on an ideology at all. When he's talking about us or anybody that is good or he doesn't want to say anything bad about, he doesn't talk about ideology. Uh, if, If he talks about ideology, it's in a negative context. And it has to do with either how he thinks the U.N. should be run or when he's talking about socialism and communism, those are failed ideologies. He is, everything he says about ideology 
in this speech is negative. And, and I think that has effects throughout. You'll see that he does, like most pragmatists do, sort of a knee jerk in, you know, giving a little bit of uh, play to altruism, collectivism, and of course, pragmatism. And here and there, there are some crazy grammatical errors. This guy needs an editor. These are prepared remarks that he's reading. And there's some places where the grammatical construction is kind of unclear. Uh, those of you in the chat room, are you able to hear me okay? Are you here listening and back here with me? I'm not even sure if you are. Given so, Okay, we got people here. Excellent. So I've got the overview that I've given you. What I want to do is I want to dive in. When I get to the point where we're going to talk about North Korea, because he said some very strong things about North Korea, and he's got some threats and stuff in there to North Korea. I would like to get the perspective of Sean Lucas Spezza, if I can, and I think he's going to uh, be calling in to discuss that with us. So let me just dive into the speech and, and start going through it and give you the observations. And again, what we're looking for overall is this anti-ideological focus. And as a result of that, I think that the world looks like a very dark and very scary place as Rand talks about, and I've got a link in the program notes. There's an essay that she has called philosophy who needs it talks about why you need philosophy, what it contributes to your life. And I think he's suffering from that. And he is putting all of his lack of philosophy in the dark and scary world out on everybody else by giving us this dark speech full of fear and warning, uh, you know, predictions of dire consequences that are going to befall us. He starts out at the very beginning talking about the suffering from the hurricanes and, you know, Americans are good. Why? Because we are strong and resilient. We emerge from hardships more determined than before. Life is not just about overcoming hardships, but if you listen to Trump too long, that's what you're going to think it is. So dark from the outset. Then, of course, he has to have the obligatory bragging paragraph about how great things have been since he was elected. Ever since he was elected, he's going to take credit for what happens in the stock market and jobs and everything else. Some of the stuff that he's talking about, is it even true? Is it too soon to have seen any effects of any of the policies that he's talking about on you know, companies moving back and all this stuff? Um, he's saying we're going to spend $700 billion on the military, but that's not because of the success of the economy. That's because he just raised the debt ceiling. So you could do a little fact-checking and just a little bit, you know, asking him to tone down on the braggadocious stuff in the, in the next paragraph. Then, you know, he's talking about the military strong and everything. And, yeah, he's at the U.N., so he's going to talk about a strong military. And then he says, I want to address some of the very serious threats before us today. So it is, it's a doom and gloom talk. And then he says, also the enormous potential waiting to be unleashed. That sounds optimistic. You think, okay, he's going to talk about this potential in the world that's waiting to be unleashed. What is it? Well, first he talks about breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. What are those about? Now we could talk about wonderful breakthroughs in science and technology that make our lives wonderful, um, you know, that improve the quality of our lives and the enjoyment of our lives. But what does he talk about in this paragraph? Curing illnesses and solving problems. 
all about the darkness, the doom and gloom. And, you know, the best we can hope for is to solve problems and cure illness. Nothing about the, the more positive things that technology, you know, the fact that I can go onto YouTube and look up a composer who was the brother of this great sculptor that I saw and then suddenly have a whole world of great music at my fingertips at a few clicks of a, of a computer. Nah, we're not going to talk about that stuff. We're going to talk about curing illnesses and solving problems. Each day, you know, and he says, we're solving these problems, right? So we're curing illnesses, we're solving problems, but then there's a new, you know, brings news of growing dangers every single day. We have new growing dangers that threaten everything we cherish and value. What are they? Terrorists and extremists. We've talked about this before. Terrorism is a tactic. So, you know, terrorism in the cause of what? Why are these people a danger? Extremists. Well, what kind of extremists? Martin Luther King knew the truth that extremism as such is not bad. It's the type of extremist that you're concerned about. But no, it's just terrorists and extremists. He wants to get you scared. I'm glad I didn't listen to the speech. It probably would have given me very high blood pressure because reading it did that in and of itself. And he talks about the rogue regimes, they support the terrorists, they threaten other nations and their own people with destructive humanity, you know, destructive weapons, etc. Next paragraph, uh, authority and authoritarian powers are going to collapse the values. What are the values that he wants to talk about? He never spells out what the values are. The values, the systems and alliances that prevented conflict and tilted the world toward freedom. What does it mean to tilt a world toward freedom? And what does freedom mean to him, actually? He'll never talk about it in the speech. There's little mention. There's a few times he mentions freedom, but he doesn't spell out what freedom is or what it exactly requires beyond sacrifice and all working together for this elusive thing that he'll never define called freedom. And he talks about internationally criminal networks, traffic drugs, weapons, and people. Over and over, he's talking about sovereignty, borders, the danger when people move internationally, right? Uh, migration, mass migration threatens our borders, etc. And then this was funny. He needs an editor. He says, new forms of aggression exploit technology to menace our citizens. It's the aggression, just like disembodied aggression that exploits technology. And I think when he uses constructions like this or he accepts constructions, like I mean, he needs an editor. Um, you know, how, how can aggression exploit technology? But to me, what that reveals is it just reveals the extent to which this man goes out of his way to avoid saying anything about the real nature of the threat that we face. It's disembodied aggression. Aggression by whom? Oh, well, he'll say terrorists maybe sometimes. But Terrorists, what is the ideology that motivates them? Who knows? Then he's going to go on and say, okay, well, if we have, a, we have strong and sovereign nations, then we can let diverse countries with different values. Oh, wait, no, you know, I skipped something because I went on to the back of a sheet. One second. Yeah, I skipped something quite important because he's talking about the nature of the UN, right? Yeah, um, sorry. I've got a little bit of a jumbled note here. Okay. So then he says, what do we have? We have this time of both immense promise, and he's summing up after this, after he talks about the aggression. He says, summing up, he says, to put it simply, we meet at a time of both immense promise and great peril. 
Now, what is the promise that he's talked about so far, right? He's doing a little sum up paragraph. He says, we meet at a time of both immense promise and great peril. The promise, the only promise he's talked about is solving problems. So he's not said anything positive, no positive vision at all. The, the best we can hope for is to avoid death and destruction. That's all we get so far, but that's immense promise, according to Donald Trump. And then he says, it's entirely up to us whether we lift the world to new heights or let it fall into a valley of disrepair. It's really ominous, very dark. So he says, okay, what do we have it in our power to do? What can we do? Lift the world to new heights. What are these new heights? We will lift millions from poverty. Again, that's just a solving problem. It's avoiding death. Then he does talk about helping citizens realize their dreams, but he doesn't elaborate on that at all. And of course, he's talking about something that is not really a proper function of government and certainly not the UN to help citizens realize their dreams. All you need to do is leave citizens alone, respect their rights, leave them free of initiation of force. You're not helping them. You're just leaving them free to do it. He says, ensure that new generations of children are raised free from violence, hatred, and fear. Now, the only job of a government and, you know, by sort of association, any association of governments is to protect people from violence, from initiation of force. If there's a proper role for government, that is the only proper role. But he has all this list, you know, and how in the world are you going to raise children free from hatred, right? Um, there was a tweet this week, somebody they were asking a question, but the question was really a way to get you to read the article. And I didn't understand that because I was tired late at night. And so I answered the question, but, and, and I answered it pretty well, but it was, you know, does love Trump fear or, or no, does love Trump hate? Does love Trump hate and is hatred the problem? And, you know, hatred is not the problem, right? It's the anti-reason mentality behind this hatred. It is not a proper function of government to, you know, handle the anti-reason mentality behind this. That's got to be left up to the citizens. All government can do is keep force out of the equation, which will allow reason to operate properly and therefore let people choose to use reason over hatred. That's the only thing that can happen. I mean, we have, you know, little enclaves of it today, but that's it. So then he goes, now he's going to talk about this institution, the United Nations. And he said, what was it founded for in the aftermath of the two world wars? It was going to shape a better future. What do they want to do? Protect sovereignty, preserve security, and promote prosperity. Now, you're not governments again. They're not supposed to promote prosperity. They're just supposed to allow it to happen by protecting people's rights. But, you know, we know Trump is not about just letting prosperity happen. He's going to try to push it in in certain directions then he says same period exactly 70 years ago the marshall plan uh peace you know the pillars of peace which are sovereignty security and prosperity how is the marshall plan going to get it he says the marshall plan was built on the noble idea so he is talking about idea here the world is safer when nations are strong independent and free now he later drops free now truman who he quotes also drops free. Truman says that the success of the United Nations depends upon the independent strength of its members. So you've got strong and independent, but you don't have free. 
you and I could say, well, you can't have a strong nation unless the nation is also free. And that's true, right? To the extent that the unfree nations are operating today, they're being propped up by the productivity of the free nations. We all know that. But nonetheless, you need to keep freedom in the equation. And he too willingly, Trump drops it out. You know, again, strong, independent, and free, but free is gone. Strong and independent, respect sovereignty. That's the stuff that Trump keeps hammering on. If we're going to overcome the perils of the present and achieve the promise of the future, we have to begin with the wisdom of the past. And what's the wisdom of the past again? Strong and independent nations. We have to embrace sovereignty. So instead of freedom, he's going to keep bringing in sovereignty. Respect those borders. Sovereignty, sovereignty. What happened to freedom? Who knows? And why? Because look at the next paragraph. He says, we do not expect diverse countries to share the same cultures, traditions, or even systems of government. In other words, we don't expect them all to respect freedom per se. He doesn't even want to talk about what freedom is, but freedom's gone. He says, we do expect all nations to uphold these two core sovereign duties. Now, what are the sovereign duties? Respect the interests of their people. Interests. Interest sounds like demands, and I've talked in the past about what does a pragmatist like Donald Trump do? He tries to satisfy as many demands, stated demands of the people as possible. Not what's in a human being's real rational self-interest, but satisfy demands. So that's why he's talking about interests of people. And he says, so you're going to respect that, and then also respect the rights of every other sovereign nation. So when he's talking about people and nations, people have interests, nations have rights. And then he says, this is the beautiful vision of this this institution, and it's a foundation for cooperation and success. So the beautiful vision is, in effect, moral relativism, because nobody's supposed to have the same cultures, traditions, or systems of government. And then... This beautiful vision is also, well, respect interests of people, some vague things so that we can pretend that we have a basis of cooperation here, but make sure we respect the rights of every sovereign nation because, of course, he wants to close our borders down. Um, Going on again, strong sovereign nations, what do they do? They let diverse countries with different values, different cultures, and different dreams not just coexist but work side by side on the basis of mutual respect. So this is a prelude to his little tweet, making all nice with the Palestinian authority today. Go look at Trump's Twitter feed if you don't believe me. I've got the tweet in the program notes if you want. Uh, Gene in the chat room is saying, yeah, he seems to be talking about people collectively rather than people as individuals. Exactly, because look what we've got coming in the next paragraph. He says, strong sovereign nations let their people take ownership of the future and control their own destinies. And then finally, he mentions individuals in the next sentence, but it is tempered and listen by what it's tempered. He says, strong sovereign nations allow individuals to flourish in the film, in the fullness of the life intended by God. So he obviously is going to have a respect for religion in this speech. And you'll see why I think it's a bit of a uh, downfall in a bit. And again, it's a prelude to why he would make nice with the Palestinian Authority and also make nice with Saudi Arabia that we've talked about. It's why he doesn't really name the problem about Iran. We'll see that in a few as well. But I think one of the reasons that Ben Shapiro is more bullish on this speech 
than I am is because Trump is saying, well, he, you know, he wants to allow individuals to flourish in the fullness of the life intended by God. But when I read a life intended by God, first of all, it's a respect for other religions like Islam, which is also in this speech. He won't call out Islam as an evil ideology the way he'll call out socialism and communism. And then the other thing was he going to talk up, he's going to talk up sacrifice, which is part of the life that's intended by God for you. You're going to be expected to sacrifice for your nation under Trump. He says, in America, we don't seek to impose our way of life on anyone, but we're going to let our way of life shine. As an example, he talks about the 230th anniversary of the Constitution. This sounds good, right? But then listen, he says, other countries have found our Constitution, which apparently is the oldest Constitution still in use in the world today, which is awesome if true. That's pretty cool if it could only have survived in its more original and true form, but we'll, you know, hope that we can resurrect it and and actually improve upon it, make it more consistent. That would be good. But what does he say? What What do other countries find inspiring in our constitution? He says it's respect for human nature, human dignity, and the rule of law. So he talks about human dignity, but not about individual rights. You know, that our country was founded on a noble idea, the rights to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. Even Obama used to mouth those words. And this guy is not. Human nature, human dignity, and the rule of law. Dignity is very, very vague. You know, who gets to decide what is part of dignity? Apparently, he would like him to be able to do this. He says, the greatest in the Constitution is, it, is its first three beautiful words, we the people. That's the best words, he says, in the Constitution, we the people, collective. It, and, and if you want a little bit more about why I reject that, I did a whole interview with Tim Sandifer about, you know, what it is that, you know, how can you really interpret the Constitution and why you cannot leave out the declarations of you know the declaration of independence talking about the rights to life liberty property and the pursuit of happiness that it's individual rights that are in effect the conscience of the constitution that is the title of the book by Timothy Sandifer and I interviewed him on the show check that out if you want to hear more about it this idea that all it is about you know the constitution is just about the rule of the people that is a very collectivist notion it's a very what we would call positivist notion. It's, it's very pragmatic, the idea that, you know, people demand things, and as long as the ruler, whoever the ruler is, the president, the chancellor, the prime minister, whatever you call him, so long as that person respects the demands of the people, that somehow everything is fine. He says, in America, the people govern, the people rule, and the people are sovereign. That's true, right? But you have to have both. You have to have both the the people wanting the government to operate a certain way, but you also have to have a principle by which that government operates. You can't just have the subjective part, even if it's a collective subjective, even if it's the majority, even if it's the totality of the people and they're all, you know, cutting each other's throats. 
it's still wrong. We need that principle in there, it's, and it's not there. And he says, he says, I was elected not to take power, but to give power to the American people where it belongs. So it's just, where's the power? And he wants the power to be to the whole of the American people. He's going to satisfy demands of the people. No, what's his job? His job is supposed to be to protect individual rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what does he believe in? Democracy, demanding, mob rule. Foreign affairs, he says, we're renewing the founding, the founding principle of sovereignty. Our founding principle is now sovereignty. Not individual rights, but sovereignty. Government's first duty is to its people, to our citizens. Now, what is he doing? To serve their needs, government is serving their needs. That's the very first thing in his little parallel construction here. Serve their needs, ensure their safety. Okay, safety, fine. Preserve their rights. Finally, he mentions rights. And he says, defend their values. Is it a government's job to defend our values? I mean, in the sense of defending from the initiation of force? True. Defend values in the sense of keep out those foreigners who don't share our values, which is the way he often tries to gloss it no and he never does talk about what the values are all the government's supposed to be doing is preserving rights and yet it's third on his list and it's buried in a bunch of others as as well president of the united states he says i will always put america first and all of you guys always should as well Um, all responsible leaders they have obligation to serve their citizens And he says, a nation state remains the best vehicle for elevating the human condition. You know, again, elevating. Now, when he talks about elevating, he's going to say elevating from what? Making sure that it doesn't fall into the quicksand or, you know, some sort of disaster. He doesn't talk about all the beautiful things that we can accomplish in this speech in terms of, like I said, enhancing our lives, enhancing the quality of our lives. It's all about solving problems and curing illness and recovering from disaster, remaining strong because, you know, after the hurricane. Uh, By the way, there is a Hurricane Maria that's threatening some people. I wish everybody the best in that, but that's not what life is about, right? Life is about achieving dreams and enjoyment but not if you listen to Trump long enough. Uh, you know, could you say that a government is the best vehicle for preserving rights? On some days we doubt it, especially given the government we have right now, but that's what should be said here. It's not elevating the human condition. Humans elevate their own condition if you respect their rights and leave them free to do so. And this is what he gets, what we might say, backwards. Remember that from childhood. He says, if we're going to make a better life for our people, again, not a job of government, he says it requires us to work together in close harmony and unity. Remember, we have all these diverse ideologies and we don't share their values and everything, but we have to work together in close harmony and unity. How can you work in close harmony and unity with people who aren't even close to sharing your values and, in fact, would like to destroy the values that sustain your life. I guess he's going to find out as he keeps trying to go down this road with Abbas and the Palestinian Authority. We'll see it. But it's a very, you know, again, collectivist idea. Work together, close harmony and unity. U.S. is going to be a great friend of the world, but we're going to, you know, he says he's going to defend America's interests above all else. And I've talked about what he means by that in the past. 
on the one hand, he's not going to be consistent in the defending of our true interests in terms of rational self-interest. And sometimes he is going to be imposing all these tariffs and everything else on other people's trade that will harm them, but it also ends up harming us. He's, America's true interests are centered again on that principle of individual rights. And insofar as he is not you know, motivated by that principle, he's not using it as a guiding principle in, in formulating policy of any kind, he could say he's respecting our interests, but he's not. Um, if, we, if we fulfill our obligations to our own nations, then we realize that it's in everyone's interest to seek a future where all nations can be sovereign, prosperous, and secure. He's so fixated on sovereignty. He wants to close our borders. He doesn't want these people coming in here. Now, he says, we do more than speak for the values expressed in the United Nations Charter. And you know, he talks about the fact that we have lost the lives of many of our soldiers on battlefields around the world. Um, and then he says, well, we haven't actually tried to impose our way of life on others after this. And it's true, we haven't had any territorial expansion. But in a certain way, we have needed to impose some part of our way of life on other people. Otherwise, we cannot actually eliminate threats. So, for example, you know, entirely restructuring Japan and Germany after World War II was arguably necessary, and we were sort of imposing. And even having the UN exist and impose sanctions and things, you are imposing a certain amount of a way of life, right? And, you know, and then we could have a debate over beer, wine, whatever, about, you know, should there be an international body of any kind? If so, in what ways should it coordinate the imposition of sanctions on other countries in order to, you know, try and sway their behavior in, in directions, you know, certain directions and things like that. What is the proper role of an international body, not even, you know, a, a government as such, but the, you know, there's, there's a little bit of imposing going on it. So it doesn't quite make much sense. There's a little bit there. You can't enforce everything. Obviously we can't make everybody else have a government like United States, but there could be sort of minimum guidelines. So then here comes bottom of page five, as I printed out, the big tell in this speech, he says, for the diverse nations of the world, our hope is, you know, that we're going to have sovereignty, security, prosperity for all. He says, we want harmony and friendship, not conflict and strife. And then he says, we are guided by outcomes, not ideology. Outcomes, not ideology. And what he's saying there is he will talk about ideology sometimes when it's convenient for him and he's not going to talk about what he's not and it is true he is guided by outcomes not ideology he's going to look at the balance of demand again he's going to try to satisfy as many demands as possible and it's the satisfaction of those demands of the forgotten american people that he's concerned with he's not concerned with ideology except to denounce it when it's convenient and it's going to feed his base and you know, serve his goals. Our policy, he says, is principled realism. Principled realism, total oxymoron if I ever heard about it, because he means principled, not really acting on principle, you know, pr principled abandoning of principle. 
and, and I had some friends who were making some really fun plays on that the other day. You can go check out. I've, I've got a post um, of, of a little photo of my prep of this, so you can check that out. Um, he says, rooted in shared goals. We have shared goals, interests, and values. Now, when he talks about values, really, what does he mean by values? I'm guessing he means things that people say they value. In other words, things that people demand, because he doesn't ever drill down to say what is actually a value given a human being that needs to operate on reason. He doesn't get that far. Do we have enough strength and pride, he asked, to confront the dangers in the world? There's challenges, threats, and even wars that we face. Again, more dark, doom and gloom. What do we have to do? He says, if we desire to lift up our citizens, if we want to get the approval of history, that's subjective if I ever heard it. He says, we have to reject the threats to sovereignty. We have to have to have respect for law, borders, and culture. He's sounding like certain talk show host that we have heard of before. Law, borders, and culture, not rights. We have to confront together those who threaten us with chaos, turmoil, and terror. Now, he says the scourge of the planet today is the regimes that violate every principle on which the United Nations is based. But remember, he wasn't concerned with ideology, but now he's going to talk about principle. He says these nations that he's going to call out respect neither their own citizens nor the sovereign rights of their countries. And... um, you know, the, the idea of respecting their citizens, what does it mean to respect their citizens? It's not the rights, but again, it's rights of countries, maybe interests of citizens, respect for citizens, even dropped interests there at all. And then he has a great statement. And if you take this statement out of context, it sounds wonderful. He says, if the righteous many don't confront the wicked few, then the evil will triumph. When decent people and nations become bystanders to history, the forces of destruction only gather power and strength. This is true, of course, but in order to identify who's wicked and who's evil and why and who's decent, you need philosophy to do it. But he is going away from ideology. He is going towards, you know, this idea of results outcomes. Now he's going to call out North Korea here in a minute. And for that, like I said, I'm going to want to talk to Jean-Luc Spezza, but let me go ahead and do a quick little musical interlude before I get on the phone with him and talk about that. I think he's waiting. Okay, everyone, I am back here, took a breath for half a second, and you're going to be happy to hear a a little bit of a break in in my nonstop ramp here, because I'm going to, I think, believe, take on, uh, is is this John Luca here on the phone? Hello? Is it John Luca? Oh, maybe not. Maybe it's someone just listening. Okay, well, oh, this could be, okay, now I've got another one. Let me try. 
Is this Hi. on the Hi, okay, yes, you're there. Excellent. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. So now we're in the section of Trump's speech where he is talking about North Korea and a lot of people were yeah, very happy with what he had to say here, right? I mean, now he's he's saying that if we have to defend ourselves or our allies, we would have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. He's saying that its only option is denuclearization, and he's calling on everyone to isolate the Kim regime until it ceases its hostile behavior. So, you know, this is a big red line. Does he really want to draw that red line? Does he want to really threaten to totally destroy? Does he want everybody to really completely isolate the regime and everybody's going to starve to death and stuff? What do you think of this? Um, well, first of all, let me say I might have some problem with, with the line because of some works that they're doing here. So if it goes down, apologies in advance. Oh, okay. Um, coming, coming to Trump, um, well, nobody can read his, his mind. I think he's just um, uh, replying to tough talk with tougher talk. Uh, mm-hmm. Not much of what he says is... is um, actually doable. There's no practical application for that. Uh, in the sense that there is no military option. I've said this a number of times and a lot of experts say the same thing. Uh, people keep thinking that you that you can actually attack a place like North Korea, but, uh, but you can not without a, a, a disproportionate cost. So. But could you see a scenario in which even though there is a lot of cost to others that a an American president would be forced to do it in order to protect us? In order to protect the citizens of the U.S.? Yes. You mean? Uh, no, really. No, Pro- probably not. No, 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 no. Uh, he he would be forced to intervene because of the agreement that the U.S. has with uh, South Korea. But again, uh, now you have a president in South Korea that is going a little bit um, shilly-shally on the military option. And one week he says that he's not going to tolerate any um, provocation from North Korea. And the next week says that he doesn't really want the THAAD defense system in the peninsula. So not sure what to do. I don't know if Trump means war when he says war. I think he, somebody must have told him that that's the way you talk to North Korea because Mm -hmm. all the people that came before him did either appeasement uh, or uh, deals that didn't really work well, like the agreed framework uh, with Clinton or did absolutely nothing like Obama did. So, Right. So, so you, you think that this could just be a lot of tough talk. And, and I was going to ask you what you thought of him using this Rocket Man label, which started out just as a tweet, right? He's calling Kim Rocket Man. And, uh, you know, first of all, it's great for the sales of Elton John's song. But here he is before yeah. the U.N. Sure. actually using the same nickname. What do you think of that? Yeah. Well, that is unprecedented. Well, it's not unprecedented because, as uh, Larry Elder rightfully pointed out, the Economist uh, did actually a cover in 2006 with Kim Jong Il, 
flying out as a rocket and called him Rocket Man. That's the father of Kim Oh Kim mm, Jong Un. So okay. of course mm-hmm. back then no nobody screamed uh, because it was the, the economist and it's fine. Um but Trump does it and then the world goes crazy of course. Now um I have to say it, it is unprecedented that a president, especially the president of the US, uh would do such a thing uh at the at the UN. Right. Uh but then again you had you have people like I don't know if you've ever sat through a speech of Fidel Castro at the UN. Oh, they it's, probably say uh, all sorts of horrible pe- things, right? Well, they say things that when you and I and all the nice people that li- listen to the show would probably laugh at, would certainly not approve of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't. They don't like nicknames and and things like that. The problem is more, as you were saying when you were reading through the speech. Um, the position that Trump, as the president of the U.S., which is a unique country, an exceptional country, uh, the position that is taken towards this institution, which uh, embodies multilateralism and globalization, and he, uh, there's a lot of people that still back Trump on his um, pre-election platform, but I think he is backing down on a lot of the promises that he made. Oh yeah, definitely. And with, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and um, the, I don't know if he wanted to impress people at the UN, but the UN is a strange uh, creature and um, not as transparent or easy to deal with as many think that it is. But with North Korea, it's mostly it's tough talk. But uh, all the all the hype that we see on the media, uh, I think it's it's exaggerated. There's no real uh, at this point still. There's no real risk of well, okay, so, not a nuclear war. Right. Well, there's there's no there's no imminent risk of a nuclear war right now. Right now, what what about this idea that he he's calling for North Korea to denuclearize? that that's the only acceptable well, future for North Korea, is that something he should be calling for, in your opinion? Well, he can call for it. People have tried. But if because we're talking about ideology and the lack of understanding on part of Trump of ideology, he doesn't understand the ideology of North Korea, which is a firstly uh, a brutally nationalistic state. So he wa- I think he wanted to, like we have a sort of moderate businessman who wants to be a nationalist or wants to appeal to the part of the country that has a nationalist sentiment dealing with perhaps the most nationalist country on the planet which is North Korea. And they will never ever uh give up their nukes. If they did, that would, that would be political suicide because uh, there's a lot of people that don't study the ideology of North Korea. And but if they did, they would easily find out that North Korea has nowhere else to go. It, uh, it cannot devolve into a like B or C grade South Korea if it, give, it gives up. If it gives up the nukes, it has virtually no more reason to exist. They'll never do right, it. because because and that, this is something I talked about earlier, which is 
that the only way to have a strong nation is to have a free nation. And they have exactly the opposite. They have a complete totalitarian dictatorship. And we're the only ones that are keeping it alive and and making it possible, along with him threatening everybody around him all the time, right? Yeah, well, North Korea, the existence of North Korea, you have two states, North and South Korea, which mm-hmm. are competing for the legitimacy to be the only legitimate government of one nation, which is the Korean nation, which exists since 3,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, the existence of either North or South Korea is predicated on the disappearance of the other. They cannot coexist. They don't recognize each other's right to exist. They yep. don't even call each other as a proper government. Each each part, both the South and the North, view each other as an illegal occupying government on one half of the peninsula. A, a lot of people yeah. don't either don't study this or don't don't understand this. So once you know this, you know that North Korea simply cannot. Uh, wake up one day and play nice because right. they would just lose any reason to be really right because other yeah otherwise it should just give up and and be part of South Korea because South Korea is actually relatively prosperous. Um, so it's so poli- it's, I politi- politically 12. speaking, politically speaking, is Trump, you know, setting himself up to fail? by calling for denuclearization? Or does everybody realize that it's his job to call for it even though it's never going to happen? It's his job to call. It's not going to happen. It's the UN's job to... to, to, Well, I'm not saying to pretend, but but to try and accommodate as many interests as possible between them. Mm -hmm. But there are some countries with some interests that you can just not accommodate. Uh, if you give North Korea what it needs to survive, that means that you're going to deny the existence of the South because what they want to do, and they have been very clear, is to join the South first in a confederate model and then absorb it under socialism, which the South... Sure, just like China is in the process of doing with Hong Kong and Palestinian Authority wants to wipe out Israel, right? (sighs) Yeah. yeah, and Iran, and that there there are some conflicting interests. That just like, unfortunately, some people just just don't play by our rules. And uh, you, and and that that's why it's important. I think this episode of the show it's it, it's quite nice because ideology and philosophy that backs up a, a political plan, it's very important. But people don't study. Uh, you cannot negotiate with somebody. Say. For Iran, uh, that country, and that has made it, it has made it very, very clear. It mm-hmm. it, it exists to ensure the the destruction of an entire state, which is the state of Israel and its people. Right. Uh, make no now it does. Now Iran, Iran uh, didn't always exist that way. But what's what's the difference now? I'm going to talk about Iran right after this because that's what Trump goes into in, into the the next segment. Um, and I don't know if, if you want to hang on for that or not. But let me let me ask you one more question just about North Korea before sure. I want to, before I go into Iran. And I also want to tell people where to find you and, mm-hmm. and what you're up to. So 
he says that everybody should isolate the Kim regime. They've already voted on these sanctions, right? The UN Security Council, they had two unanimous 15-0 votes adopting these hard-hitting resolutions. And then he had that tweet about there's got to be these gas lines in North Korea, and apparently there aren't gas lines. There's not even enough cars probably. So, um, you know, are they going to isolate the regime? Because when I read isolate the regime, in order to get it to collapse, he'd have to starve a lot of people first, right? Um, it, it's very, very hard to do that. North Korea so far has been going through, I think, 12 or 13 rounds of sanctions and resolutions from the UN. Uh, and they had a fantastic increase in their nuclear program, so clearly the sanctions don't work. Whatever sort of sanctions they think they, they, they can implement, like the reality, the facts, which you have to look at the facts, the, 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 the facts are telling you that the sanctions are not working because they, okay. they just made an incremental progress, a geometrical progress. So, okay, so, so then overall, the overall what, do you, what do you think of these remarks? Is, is there anything good that he did by making these remarks at the U.N.? Um, I would say if there's one indirect, I don't think that he meant it, but if there is one indirect good consequence of this is that he finally, uh, there has never been such a long, prolonged period in which the world has paid attention to North Korea. And that's a good thing because at least people talk about it. Because if you go back each year, you would talk about that, that place maybe one week per year, maybe a couple of weeks, and then completely disappear from the news. And now it's in the news daily. Not for good reasons, but at least people talk about it. And that's a problem that has to be solved. There right. could be some solution, but people have to accept the 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 very realistic proposition that there is no perfect solution. The best that you can get at this point with, with all the delay is something that would accommodate big questions like uh, the reunification or the nuclear thing, but some other relatively smaller questions like the violation of human rights and the widespread poverty and famine. And those would probably not be solved at least for the next 15 years. So you have to accept that. For the next 15 years or so. So what I see, for you anyway, because now you're finishing your PhD on this I'm region, you're an tomorrow, expert. Yeah. Yeah, so, oh, tomorrow. Okay, well, congratulations, and especially thank you for talking Thanks. with us this evening then. But I see the opportunity for you to, for instance, write the book that is going to give the recommended solution that should be put in Trump's hands. So you could you could I'll do this and I, then I put it out there. If you can read it, but yeah, I'll try. <laughs> somebody, uh, somebody will read it for him. Considering working on it. I hope somebody will yeah. read it for him and somebody, somebody with a good you know grasp of. Right. Actually, I hope whoever reads it for him does a better job than whoever read 1984 for Hillary Clinton. As long as we get that going, that would be. Nice. So in the meantime, before, because yeah. <laughs> you, you were, first of all, I hope you'll come back and speak with me again, because this, like you said, this topic is not going away anytime soon. So I hope we'll talk some more. Uh, but in the meantime, where do people find you? They find you mostly on Twitter right now, right? 
mostly on Twitter. I am working now that I'm the, the PhD is almost done. I'm I'm working on I'm setting up my own website. I will let you know as soon as you, it's ready. Okay, excellent. And so in the meantime, they find you on I, they find you on Twitter at on the Twitter. I do have a few articles. Um, um, that are going to be published in the next weeks on a, on a few 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 outlets, but um, I'll, I would have to confirm that. So. Okay, great. No, and just keep us, yeah. you know, apprised, and and I'll keep sending your articles out there too. But yeah, if you guys are on Twitter, follow him at the Spez T H E S P E Z Z. That's correct, Sean Luca, right? Correct. Great. Yes, absolutely correct. Okay, thank, thanks so much, everybody, and uh, or thanks to you, Jean-Luca. Everybody else is hopefully going to hang on, and we're going to continue good. to uh, talk about the rest of this speech. We're going to talk about Iran now. So thanks again, and we'll talk soon. Let me continue a bit more here on Iran. Maybe this is a good time to take another quick little musical interlude for a second. Okay, we're back here, and thanks again to Jean-Luca for talking to us about the speech insofar as it addresses North Korea. Then we've got treatment of Iran in this speech, and I think a number of people thought that it was pretty strong, but what you'll notice is that in this speech, he never calls out the Iranian government as being a theocracy as being centered on any type of ideology. Later in the speech, he does call out radical Islamic terrorism, but he never connects the current dictatorship in Iran with the ideology, and in particular, not with the religion. He's not going to talk about that. He says the Iranian government masks a corrupt dictatorship, not a theocracy, says, behind the false guise of a democracy, because, of course, democracy is fine. It's just corrupt dictatorships that are bad. He says, it's turned a wealthy country with a rich history and culture into an economically depleted rogue state whose chief exports are violence, bloodshed, and chaos. So the exports are violence, bloodshed, and chaos. But note, the export from Iran is also ideology. And in particular, Islam, in, in particular, the, you know, so, sort of instruction or the call to action for people, Muslims around the world, to take Islam seriously and join in the jihad. That's one of the things that's being exported from Iran, and that's the problem. Violence, bloodshed, and chaos can't be exported apart from the ideology that motivates the violence, bloodshed, and chaos, but he's not going to talk about that. And then, of course, he includes when he's talking about this issue of jihad, of terrorism is what he'd call it. He never, you know, he, he, he adopts something that all politicians do. He makes sure to come in and talk about 
the fact that the first victims or the, the ones who suffer the most are the Muslims or that country's own people. So with Iran, he says, the longest suffering victims of Iran's leaders are, in fact, its own people. And I think this is why, he, why we lose this type of war. First of all, we fail to identify the ideologies at the root. Second, we don't properly prioritize the safety of us and our allies. Yeah, it, it's sad that Iran is making its own people victims. And it is one of the things that makes it legitimate for us, for example, to invade them if we need to in order to shut down their nuclear program or stop them from funding terrorism or what, you know, what we need to do. They lose sovereignty insofar as they don't respect the rights of their people. But that's not the first priority. The first priority is they are a threat and they are a threat because of their ideology. He talks about how you know, they don't use their resources to improve Iranian lives. Instead, the oil profits go to Hezbollah and other terrorists that kill innocent Muslims. That's the first thing he says. Hezbollah and other terrorists that kill innocent Muslims and attack their peaceful Arab first and then second Israeli neighbors. So it's the Muslims and the Arabs who are first given first mention in this speech from your President Trump. I'm calling him yours. I didn't vote for him. Uh, he says, the wealth which rightly belongs to Iran's people. Now, first of all, does the wealth even rightly belong to Iran's people? I'd have to go back and refresh myself on Iran's course on the history of the Middle East. But as I recall, this wealth, at least in part, rightly belongs to some of the Western interests who invested in the oil before the um, you know, before the nationalization in the Middle East happened in the 50s, and we all just laid down and let it happen. That's how we got here. So, um, you know, here I am, I'm swearing. When he, the first thing he comes in and says, kill innocent Muslims, I have an expletive in the, in the margin that I can't read to you. Uh, it's terrible that they do this. And then he talks about the Iran deal and it's an embarrassment to the U.S. and you haven't heard the last of it. And you guys saw out there, um, you know, Iran's president said, oh, if you, United States reneges on the deal, there's going to be a loss of trust or something. It's like, that's garbage. We don't owe anything. You cannot negotiate with these people and they continue to fund terrorists. But, you know, just send them another pallet of cash. It'll be awesome. We need to join the entire world or we need the world to join us in demanding that Iran's government end the pursuit of death and destruction. And he says, uh, the regime needs to free all the American citizens and citizens of other nations they've unjustly detained. Okay, nice. That's a good call to action. And then he says they have to stop supporting terrorists. You know, again, why does Iran support terrorists? Because it is a theocracy that wants Islam to spread throughout the world via jihad, the means of jihad. But no, he's not going to say any of that. And, you know, this is, again, the sort of lapse that helps you understand why today he's all happy about the Palestinian Authority, why he makes nice with the Saudis and stuff, too. He is not going to call out the hostile Muslim nations as being motivated by the religion behind their theocracy. It's ridiculous. And he says, um, other than the vast military power of the United States, he says Iran's people are what the leaders fear the most. Some of the people, for sure. Some of them. 
And the next paragraph, he says, oppressive regimes cannot endure forever. The day will come when the Iranian people will face a choice. Is it, you know, obviously forever, nothing can endure forever. But oppressive regimes, if they are theocracies, can endure for a very long time. And this is another place where understanding ideology can help you. If you go back and you look at Leonard Peikoff's dim hypothesis, one of the things that he warns about there is that if we do go into a religious theocracy next, if that's the next wave that you know sort of dominates the world culture, a religious theocracy can endure for a very long time. Why? Because it's promising results, not here, you know, here in this world. Socialism, communism, secular totalitarian ideologies, they can't deliver, right? They, they have these promises, but they can't deliver. And eventually, when people get tired of the deprivation and the misery, and they, you know, they haven't been promised an afterlife, then they revolt. But, you know, they revolt if they can. But under a religious theocracy, you're not supposed to expect results in this life. And in fact, what is Trump holding up? Trump is holding up the whole idea that we're supposed to live as God would want us to live, which is going to get you ready for sacrifice, some calls that he makes at the end. Um, Theocracies can endure for a very long time. No, not forever, but for a very long time. It is scary. It's not that you can you know, count on these to collapse under their own weight the way that you could with a communist regime properly isolated. So then he says, you know, are the Iranians, are they going to, you know, continue to embrace bloodshed and terror? Will they return to the nation's proud roots? You know, what, what are the proud roots? The proud roots are insofar as they don't take their religion seriously. But he, again, he's not talking about that. He says, the Iranian regime's support for terror, why not just say jihad, he says, is in stark contrast to the recent commitments of many of its neighbors to fight terrorism and halt the financing. And then he's talking about in Saudi Arabia, and he, you know, they've got a commitment to fight against Islamist extremism. That was the little orb thing. But you know, again, they were just talking about extremism in general. He puts in the word Islamist, but that's Islamist extremism makes it seem as if the religion is okay. And it's not. It is a theocratic regime in Iran. That is what motivated, motivates it. That's why they think that they have to destroy Israel. It's because of the religion. It's what their holy book tells them. He won't say anything about that. But he does say, we will stop radical Islamic terrorism because we cannot allow it to tear up our nation and indeed tear up the entire world. I don't know if he listened to my tweet and probably other people who were complaining that on 9-11 he did not even use the words radical Islamic terrorism. He threw them in here. But it's almost like a parrot because he doesn't really understand why radical Islamic terrorism would even be called Islamic we have to deny the terrorists the safe haven, haven, transit, funding, any form of support for their vile and sinister ideology. Now, why didn't he include ideology as one of the main exports from Iran? And why wouldn't he connect the ideology to the nature of the Iranian regime? You know, And then how can we even call their ideology sinister if we ourselves are not concerned with ideology, which is what he said on five, page five of the speech? I don't know. Because we have to drive them out of our nations, expose and hold responsible those who support and finance Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Taliban, and others, etc. Um, 
And he does have this one line, which is, you know, nice sometimes to hear from American president. We need the, the U.S. and the allies, he says, they're working together to crush the loser terrorists and stop the reemergence of the safe haven. Why not say loser jihadists? It would just, again, terrorism is a tactic. He needs to talk about what the real nature of the threat is, and he's divorced from it. Our security interests from now on are going to dictate the length and scope of military operations. That's fine. Um, He says we've changed the rules of engagement, but he doesn't say how they've changed exactly or why, just that we have made big gains. It would be nice to talk about how we've changed the rules of engagement, why we've changed them, have a little moral self-righteousness to it, but he doesn't talk about that. In Syria, we seek a political solution, and yet he talks about the missile strike that we carried out because of the chemical weapons being used against their own citizens. So we want a political solution, but I guess we'll use military again if we have to. Is that the implication there? Can you have a political solution with somebody who's willing to use these chemical weapons against their own citizens and, you know, against hostiles probably as well. Then he goes into the whole refugee thing. And he talks about the fact that his preferred solution is to assist in refugee resettlement in the Middle East and countries around the areas from which they are fleeing. And he throws out this statistic. He says, for the cost of resettling one refugee in the United States, we can assist more than 10 in their home region. Now, He gives you an alternative here. The alternative is we use United States tax dollars, tax dollars from you and me, American citizens, if you're listening from the U.S. We use it to resettle a refugee here, which comes with tremendous risk, potentially, depending on where they're coming from. He says, well, instead, we can assist more than 10. Now, why is it a proper use of our money, President Trump, to assist these refugees at all. Now, you could say many of these refugees are worthy recipients of charity that many, you know, you and I privately might be motivated to donate to certain refugees, particularly if it's resettling them in their home region and they're not posing any threat to us. Okay, fine. But this should be an issue of private charity. But he's saying, well, you know, we can either spend the money this way or that way. And in fact, I've talked about this before in the latest budget version that I've heard about that Trump submitted to Congress, he included annual funding for 50,000 refugees, our tax dollars. And then at the same time, he's battling in the courts to be able to keep out some of the refugees over others and, you know, say, well, which country can it be from? That whole problem could go away if he wouldn't use our money, our funds to pay for those refugees in the first place there'd be a lot less of an issue with the refugees. Because over the long term, uncontrolled migration is deeply unfair to both the sending and the receiving countries. Now listen to how he talks about this migration. First of all, he says sending countries. Is the country sending these people or are these people saying, hey, I would like to live or I would like to live a better life. And so therefore I am taking me and my family or whoever and I'm leaving the countries aren't necessarily sending. These people are escaping. He says, well, for these countries, he says, it reduces domestic pressure to pursue needed political and economic reform. How pragmatic does that sound? It's like, well, if we let these people escape the way that they want to, 
then there's not going to be any pressure to make the countries there any better. And then listen to this. He says, it drains them of the human capital necessary to motivate and implement those reforms. As if these individuals, these refugees, these people who he thinks it's our duty to contribute our tax dollars to help, right? They shouldn't be allowed to determine what happens with their own lives. They are to be considered as human capital or as motivation, domestic pressure to achieve political and economic reform. Human capital, is that not, you know, it tells you what he thinks of individual human beings. And then he says for the receiving countries, the substantial costs of uncontrolled migration, it sounds so threatening, uncontrolled migration, they are borne overwhelmingly by low-income citizens whose concerns are often ignored by both the media and the government. No, no, really, the cost is borne mostly by two factors. One is if there is actually a risk of bringing in some of the refugee populations because it's not possible to adequately screen all of them to ensure that ISIS members are not in there or whatever. And then, again, tax dollars. Our tax dollars are being used to resettle these people here in the United States. That's what we should be worried about. We shouldn't be worried about, oh, you know, there's competition in the workplace and wages and stuff. I've talked about the Wharton study from Pennsylvania. That's not the concern. The concern is the safety. The concern is that our tax dollars are being used to pay for this, and it should never be. It should be an issue of private charity. And then he's congratulating the United Nations and in the past, addressing the problems that cause people to flee from their homes. So he's calling on United Nations, hey, help us out here. We don't want to allow migrants. We want the UN to help take care of this problem that I myself am not willing to take care of the way that I can, which is by striking this entirely from the budget. He says, we have invested in better health and opportunity all over the world. You know, he says how we are charitable all around the world. AIDS relief, malaria initiative, global health security agenda, fund to end modern slavery, the Women Enterprise Finance Initiative, which I think is his daughter. Um, you know, but again, our tax dollars. But he's going to go brag about it and everything else. And and you know, we're altruists too. And then you know, United Nations. It should be more about results and not bureaucracy and process. Bureaucracy and process is often about principles. But again, he doesn't want to focus on principles, ideology. He wants to focus on results here. He'll talk about ideology some places, this here. Now, he says, in some cases, states that seek to subvert the UN's noble aims have hijacked the very systems that are supposed to advance them. So he does call out the fact that it's an embarrassment, he says, this is quoting from him, an embarrassment to the United Nations that some governments with egregious human rights records sit on the UN Human Rights Council. Excellent. That's good that he calls that out. You know, any good president should call this out. And you say, well, he's used the word rights there. He has. He's got no other option of vocabulary to use there because it is the UN Human Rights Council. Otherwise, he'd probably throw in interests or maybe he'd even leave out a term altogether and just say respect people. And he wouldn't talk about how you respect people, what by what principle, what that means. Who knows? Talks about the U.S. Uh, bearing an unfair cost burden for the U.N., which is good. And he says maybe the U.N. someday will 
advocate for human dignity and freedom around the world, um, you know, more than just sovereignty. But in the meantime, it's just about the cost and it's just about fighting for sovereignty. Uh, And he talks about, you know, you have to basically clean up your own backyard. And so we have resolved to keep sanctions on Cuba because Cuba's kind of in our own backyard until it makes fundamental reforms. So he's urging other countries to take on some of the cost burden, at least. So I guess that's good. We have imposed, he says, tough calibrated sanctions on Venezuela. So now he's going into the section on Venezuela. And a lot of people were very excited about him talking about socialism and, um, you know, criticizing socialism in very strong terms as it sounds, but notice that it is packaged with his contempt for ideology. In this first paragraph, he talks about the socialist dictatorship of Nicolas Maduro. It's inflicted terrible pain and suffering on the good people of the country. The corrupt regime destroyed a prosperous nation by imposing a failed ideology that has produced poverty and misery everywhere. So, you know, this bad ideology has imposed it. It's, it's failing. And he goes on later, actually, to say that the problem is not that socialism has been poorly implemented. Right? He's doubling down. He says it's not that it's been poorly implemented. He says, but that socialism has been faithfully implemented. From the Soviet Union to Cuba to Venezuela, why not talk about also North Korea? He says, wherever true socialism or communism has been adopted, it has delivered anguish and devastation and failure. Those who preach the tenets of these discredited ideologies only contribute to the continued suffering of the people who live under these cruel systems. Why not talk ideology, the discredited ideology of Islam and the, and the cruel system that exists in Iran because of that? No, he's only bringing up ideology explicitly to denounce it in favor of getting results. You know, he can denounce safely socialism or communism as ideology, but does he talk about ideas on which our country is founded on good ideas, what that would be? No, because he is not interested in faithfully implementing a good ideology. He is anti-ideology as such. He'll use this, you know, he'll discredit them. And he, and he, you know, in your mind, he's creating a negative association with ideology just by the way he uses it in the speech as well. Um, no, I mean, in, you know, in the context where he's denouncing ideology as such, he's never going to give you the, the real answer. He says, America stands with every living person, excuse me, every living person, with every person living under a brutal regime. So we're standing with anyone who's living under that brutal regime in Venezuela. He says, our respect for sovereignty is also a call for action. To me, that makes no sense, because here I would say that our respect for sovereignty is trumped by the fact, not the pun was not intended, to, you know, help out people who are being destroyed by their own governments. You know, that we, at least we would be morally entitled to invade the sovereignty of that country insofar as the country is uh, aggressive to its citizens. He says, all people deserve a government that cares for their safety, their interests, and their well-being, including their prosperity. Is he not describing some socialist countries in the world 
if you say, oh, a country that cares for your safety, your interests, and your well-being, including their prosperity, you need a government that respects rights, that leaves people free to pursue their own interests. There's some aspects of socialism that Trump is open to bringing here and, you know, we're redistributing wealth and we're doing debt financing and everything else. A lot of things that socialist countries do. We have a mixed economy here, but good luck sustaining that. So, you know, a lot of people say, okay, well, he's denouncing socialism, but he is not denouncing it in a principled way. He's just saying like everybody else, oh, it's a discredited ideology. And people are just preaching the tenets. That sort of language is very typical pragmatist language that they use to, you know, just pollute in your mind the whole idea of ideology, the idea of a philosophy, you know, that that ideas can actually help you make your life better. Instead, he's saying, you know, focus on results, ideology, bad I'm not going to talk about the fact that there's an ideology motivating these other people because I want to make deals with them. But these people here, I'm not going to try to make any deals with them. So why don't I go ahead and say that they have discredited ideologies? Now, in America, he's talking about trade. Trade's got to be reciprocal. He's very vague in this section. There's not a lot that you can talk about. The forgotten people in America, they're not going to be forgotten again. You know, again, he, he's talking about the fact that he is going to try to satisfy the demands of the, quote, forgotten people in America. He is a pure pragmatist. We're going to pursue cooperation, but we're also, we have the first duty of every government, the duty to our citizens. And he's going to, again, satisfy the demand. In Towards the end, as he's rolling into it, he's talking again about the, the role of this institution, the role of the United States of Nations. And you'll notice in the last, it's about two pages, the last two pages or so, I've got three pieces of paper, but it's about two pages total. It's this wind up of the speech when he's talking about the organization again and motivating everybody. The word freedom is almost nowhere to be found. Again, he brings up the Truman quote about the independent strength of the members of the United States nations. And he says, what do we need? We, have, we need to have nations that are home to patriots, to men and women who are willing to sacrifice for their countries, their fellow citizens, and for all that is best in the human spirit. Sacrifice. He says, in remembering the great victory that led to the body's founding, we must never forget the heroes who fought against evil, also fought for the nations that they loved. So it's patriotism, fight for the nation you love, sacrifice. But again, nowhere in this does he yet talk about freedom. And he says, patriotism led the Poles to die to save Poland. And then he says, the French to fight for a free France, but free from what? Free from domination by another country, Right. He talks about rights of nations. So France has the right to be free in the sense of as a country. The Brits to stand strong for Britain. It's all about nationalism. He says, today, if we don't invest ourselves, our hearts, and our minds in our nations, we won't build strong families, safe communities, and healthy societies. No one can do it for us. We can't wait for far-off countries or bureaucrats. Again, he's 
you know, kind of preparing the ground for the isolationism for he wants to close our borders and not let people here. Don't let someone else far off countries or far off bureaucrats solve your problems. You guys all solve your problems at home. Don't send your people to our country. That's what he's saying here. So it's a true question for United Nations today for people all around the world. It's a basic one. Are we still patriots? Do we love our nations enough to protect their sovereignty, take ownership of the future? Do we revere our nations enough to defend um, their, their interests, preserve their cultures, ensure a peaceful world? So interest of the nation, culture of the nation. One of the greatest patriots, he says, John Adams wrote that the American Revolution was affected before the war was commenced. It was in the minds and hearts of the people. So what we're going into now is what I would call his primacy of consciousness section where he's putting the content of our minds, our will and everything. Uh, United States of America, he says, has been among the greatest forces for good in the history of the world, greatest defenders of sovereignty, security and prosperity of all. Why? Why is it this defender? It's because we were founded on an idea, the idea of individual rights, but he doesn't mention that. He says, now we're calling for a great reawakening of nations, revival of the spirits, the pride, their people, their patriotism. It's all just attitude and will without any idea behind it. No direction. History is asking us, he says, whether we are up to the task. Our answer will be a renewal of will, a rediscovery of resolve, a rebirth of devotion. These are all terms of motivation but what is the motivation based on it should be based on an idea you and i we know in our lives if we have been motivated to do something but the thing that we decided to do wasn't based on the right idea it had no value we have to defeat the enemies of humanity unlock the potential of life itself how do we do that he doesn't say it's to protect rights proud independent nations respect their duties a future of dignity and peace for people dignity what does dignity mean we don't know he says we will fight together sacrifice together stand together and then finally he says peace freedom finally freedom is there but he doesn't talk about what it is for family humanity and the almighty god who made us all so again a little hat tip to religion at the end of it and that explains why he's not willing to denounce the ideology of Iran and some of the states. Um, is John, John Adams primacy of consciousness? No, John Adams is not primacy of consciousness. Uh, it is Trump's citation of John Adams' primacy of consciousness. So don't misinterpret me there. Okay, everyone, I'm out of time. You can go to the program notes at don'tletitgo.com and see. But my diagnosis of this is that the reason it sounded dark, the reason it sounded doom and gloom is because he didn't offer a philosophical alternative to the ideologies that he was denouncing. In fact, he denounced ideology as such. I'll talk to you guys on Friday. Until then, take care.